Greetings one and all. Welcome to the Berean Podcast. This message is a part of our Seven Seas of History series. And if you've ever wondered how this crazy world we live in got this broken and terrible, then stick around because our teaching pastor, Justin Bluer, is about to dive into the answer to those questions. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning. Thank you for braving the cold and the crunchy snow to come out here this morning. You know, I noticed this week, I, I walked outside to go home, I forget what day it was, and I felt like it was a heat wave, and I got home and I checked the temperature, and it was 23 degrees. <laughs> so just hang in there, we are six weeks away until spring begins. You can make it, right? Turn to the person next to you and say, you can make it. Oh, you really believe that, don't you? <laughs> Hey, welcome to our other campuses, Cincy, Bainbridge Online. Uh, we are in a series, and let me just ask you before we jump in. Um, you've ever had a week that feels heavy? Yeah, <laughs> besides just the snow, the ice, the rain. Uh, so this week, um, there's a really great guy from our church, new to our church family. Uh, in the last couple years, he's been coming. He has a wife, three sons. And um, on Monday, we found out that he just lost his battle with COVID. And uh, it's heartbreaking. And Thursday, I had the privilege of being here and doing a funeral for a wonderful lady in our community, 61 years old, who just lost her battle with ovarian cancer. And do you ever just get this sense, like, it seems like bad winds Seems like death wins. Do you, ever, do you ever feel like it shouldn't be this way? Anybody else? It shouldn't be this way? Life is just, man, can it be unfair? And, and, and I think the question that most of us struggle with at some point in our lives is the question, man, if God was really good, you know where I'm going with this? If God was really good, then why all the bad? And then the follow-up question is, okay, if he's really all-powerful, like I'm told he is in the Bible, if he's really all-powerful, then why doesn't he stop this mess? Either he's not completely good or he's not completely powerful, because if he was both, I tend to think it would be different. Suffering is considered to be the greatest problem for the Christian faith. How do you explain a world filled with suffering, disease, and death if there is a God who is both good and all-powerful? To understand that, you've got to understand the big picture. And that's the reason for our story, the, human, the, the series called The Human Stories. We are looking at the seven major events in human history called the seven seas, and hopefully shedding light on how we got here, why we're here, why this world's a mess, and what can be done about it. Now, last week, we were introduced to the first C, which was creation. And the idea that we were presented with is that a very good God created a good world. Yes? It's even a little better than that. A perfect God created a perfect world. And if you stop there, you know that the story's little not finished, because I don't live in that perfect world anymore. What happened? What broke everything? 
Why does it seem like we're so far from perfect, I don't even understand this world or God anymore? Today we're going to look at the second C, which is crucial to understanding our story, to understanding how we got here, and understanding how we get out of this mess. So if you would meet me, we've got to go really back far in the story, all the way back to Genesis 3, really right after the creation account. First two chapters of Genesis, they're the creation account. You've got to go right after that to figure out what happened. Uh, it's page four if you want to use your chair Bible. And listen, if you want a Bible, please take it with you. That's our gift to you. But Genesis chapter three, we're going to walk through this really pivotal story to hopefully make sense of the mess that you and I live with every single day. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. You ready? Okay, here we go. V begins right off. We've just got the creation, we've got perfection, and now the first two words of Genesis chapter 3 are what? The serpent. Okay, this is going to get fun. The serpent was the what? The shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, so you've got two humans, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Okay, pause right here. There's a lot to unpack before we go any further. We got, we got to kind of understand what's going on. Until this moment in the narrative, everything is perfect. Everything is good. It's exactly as God intended. You've got one. It's funny. Until this point, the only thing that wasn't perfect, the only thing that wasn't perfect is that God looked at the man he created and said, it's not good that you're alone. And God fixed it instantly by creating a woman and doing the first marriage ceremony. So the only thing less than perfect God had already fixed, and he created a second person, he did, he did marriage, he created family, and he fixed it right away, within the same day. And so here, you have to say, okay, what's going on? What is this What is this thing that the serpent says? Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from the trees in the garden? Now, what had God actually said in the creation account? You should not eat what? The tree. There's one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, evil, and that fruit alone is forbidden for you. And that fruit was what? Well, everyone knows it was an apple. Actually, no one knows it was an apple. That was just a... Kind of a myth or a legend or whatever, but we'll go with it. Okay, it was a fruit. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a mango. Maybe it was a giant Skittle. It'd be more likely that it was that. But it was something. It was some fruit on this tree in the center of the garden. And God's request was kind of simple. So he basically said, look, I've given you all of this garden. I've given you all of this world. It's all yours. Enjoy it. Enjoy each other. Eat what you want. There's just one request. There's one tree that's off limits. That's it. Now, I know that if you're a thinker, you've probably asked the question before, well, why did God even put that tree there? Why even give the, the, the temptation? Well, here's the deal. God didn't create robots. God created people after his image, people who could think and reason and feel, people who could choose to love or hate, people who had 
will, the ability to make their own choices. And so he literally just gives them a choice right there. He's like, you can choose the entire garden in me and just avoid that one tree, just avoid that one fruit. That's the only boundary you see. And I don't think it was that 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 fruit was all that awesome or different than any of the other fruit in the garden. I am not sure it was. I, I think it was almost like when, when you say to your kids, hey, hey, kiddo, you know, you can have fun in this room. You can touch anything. But by the way, there's that one glass vase from grandma that's really special to us. Don't touch it. You leave the room. What's the kid going to look at right away? The glass vase. What's the kid probably going to go touch? What are you going to hear within a matter of minutes? A broken vase. It's not that it's special. It's just that it's off limits. And there's something within each of us. When I'm told not to, I'm drawn to that thing. And we are as kids and we are as adults. That one thing. Now, another thing that's interesting. How long was this after the creation week? Adam and Eve were created, but they're new on the earth. They're created as adults. Did they have belly buttons? Like, that's the big question. No one knows. But, but let me ask you, how far was this after Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation account? Another thing that we have no idea. We don't know. A lot of scholars think this is literally just days or weeks after. And I tend to agree from the clues in the text, the fact that Eve isn't pregnant yet. I, I think this was pretty early. This is maybe the week after. And then you say, okay, well, who is this serpent? So again, another head scratcher. The serpent is called the shrewdest of all the living things that God's created. All the living animals, all the wild animals. When it says shrewd there, give me a definition for shrewd. Help me understand this. What shrewd mean? Crafty, I heard, yeah. Sneaky. Clever. I mean, we have a negative connotation for shrewd. Shrewd isn't a negative thing. Shrewd is just really astute or intelligent or clever. Uh, Jesus actually told his followers to be as shrewd as serpents. What do you think Jesus was talking about? He told his followers, be as shrewd as serpents, but to be as harmless as doves. This serpent was being as shrewd as a serpent, but he was not being as harmless as a dove. And so the question becomes, who is this and, and why is this thing or this being introducing this conflict, this tension in this perfect place? Well, the story behind this story is that at some unknown time, God had created more than just the world, more than just humans. God had also created all these beings who we call angels, guardians and messengers of God. And of all those created beings that he had made, the one who was his number two, his name was Lucifer, the son of the morning, the the bright star. And Lucifer was given a task, and his task was to guard the throne of God. It was an honorable task, and you would think he would be flattered by that task, but rather than being flattered, he was jealous. How come I'm good enough to guard the throne of God but not sit on it? Right, So he gets talking with some of the other powerful beings and he actually gets 
tens of thousands of them to agree that he should be the one on the throne, he does a coup attempt, and the coup attempt fails instantly because no one, I don't care how powerful your number two is, if your number one is infinitely powerful, you have no chance. And he found that out quickly. He's flicked out of heaven like a bug, flicked down to earth. And here at earth, he's given incredible power and ability because he was created to be number two. And he has one main mission in life. And his one main mission is to be God and to ruin everything that God's made. Jesus said the thief, he calls him a thief. He says the thief has come only to steal, kill, and destroy. And so somehow... Lucifer, who you may know as Satan, takes the form of a serpent and is here in Eden looking to very quickly ruin what God made. Now, the indication is that he can't ruin it by himself. He's limited. So he has a plan to ruin it, and it's by engaging humans in his cause. Now, another question you may ask is, what was the serpent? Any guess on that? I know traditionally a lot of people think it's a snake. I was going to bring one in for you. I decided there'd be too quick of an exodus and people would fall on the ice. Um, as other people say it was a dragon, you know, the, the, there's lots of guesses. Ultimately, the sad news is Eve didn't turn her GoPro on. So I have no idea, and you have no idea what this serpent looked like or what it actually was. But ultimately, it's this being who's talking to her. And what he says is interesting. We don't know what he looked like, but what he says is interesting. He said, did God really say? You know what Satan's really good at? Questioning God. He's really good at making us question God. Did God really say? And then he says, you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden. Did God really say that? Of course God didn't say that. But what Satan is doing is he's planting a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. Is God really as good as you think he is? He's making God look kind of extreme. He's making God look angry and uncaring. Is God trying to limit you from enjoying something in this garden? Is God God really as good as you think he is? Now, Eve's response is phenomenal. Verse 2, of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. Of course we may. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. I don't know why she thought that, but God hadn't said that. You must not eat it is what God has said, or even touch it, she adds. If you do, you will die. So her response was, Mr. Serpent, you're all wrong. We can eat any of the tree's fruit in this garden. It's just this one that's forbidden. She actually gets it right. But the serpent is pretty shrewd, so he doesn't let up. He was planting a seed of doubt, and he keeps going. He responds right away, you won't die. You kidding me? You're not going to die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, here's what I want you to know about Satan, because he's still alive, he's still the number two being in the universe, meaning he's incredibly powerful, more powerful than you or I will ever be. (laughs) Here's what I want you to know about Satan. If his lips are moving, he's lying. 
He is a pathological liar. But he's really clever at making his lies look and sound true. And he says to Eve, you kidding me? You're going to take a bite of that thing and drop dead? Pfft, not going to happen. Take a bite. Watch what's going to happen. Now, Satan had nothing to lose here. If she dropped dead, what's he going to say? Oops, I was wrong. Sue me. You're not going to die. And, and, and he begins to have this doubt. Well, yeah, really? What? Why would God make me only to kill me? I, I, I don't know that I would die. Now, here's what's interesting, though. He plants another seed of doubt, and he says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Here's what's crazy. I think the part that would have resonated is the idea of being like God, because Eve and Adam respected God, loved God, worshiped God, revered God. To be more like him, who wouldn't want that? And he throws in there, you're going to know good and evil. Now let me ask you, what evil was there for Eve to know? The world up to this point is perfect. There is no evil to know. And yet, and yet the serpent here is getting her to doubt and question God's goodness, making her wonder if these limits are real, making her wonder if the limit is just God's way of limiting her happiness, her pleasure, her knowledge, what she wants. And so Satan just kind of masterfully dangles the bait in front of her. And like any good fisherman, he's hid the hook. Look what happens next, verse six. The woman was convinced. I mean, this is a brief conversation. 60 seconds, maybe. A week into the creation, who knows? The woman's convinced she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he said, no, honey, you really shouldn't be doing this. No, and he ate it too. And, and I imagine in that moment, as they're chewing on that fruit, they're thinking, man, this doesn't taste all that bad. And we are still alive. And, and that moment of freedom, that moment of independence, that moment of, hey, we can do what we want to do. Who's to tell us what we can't do? And they eat it, and in that moment, everything changes. Look at verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened. Now, they could see. It's not a physical thing. All of a sudden, they become aware of things they weren't aware of. Their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt what? They had never before experienced this thing called shame. They had never known such a concept. And all of a sudden, like a ton of bricks, this thing called shame lands on them. And they feel ashamed at their nakedness. So they instantly go and they make some vegan organic clothing out of fig leaves to cover themselves. So here's what's interesting. When, when our kids are young, I don't know about your kids. When our kids are, are young, and some of them that still are, they have no qualms about running through the house in their birthday suit. They'll run outside in their birthday suit. They come to church in their birthday suit. But there, there's a certain period 
of maturity, of age that they get to, where all of a sudden they aren't comfortable being in their birthday suit. If that time doesn't come, your kid's got a problem. But for just about every kid, it hits at a certain age, three, four, five, six, right? And, and a kid's like, ooh, right? And they, and they cover themselves. They feel a sense of shame at their nakedness. Now, up till this moment, Adam and Eve never experienced that because everything was perfect. God hadn't invented clothes because clothes were unnecessary. There's no sin. There's no temp. There's, there's nothing that would create a need for clothes. Obviously, there wasn't snow in the Garden of Eden. You didn't need boots or, or, or anything of that sort. But suddenly, they're not only aware of evil. Remember, they now have the knowledge of not just good and evil. Up to this point, there's only been good to be aware of. And now suddenly, instantly, they're aware of evil. And I think the heavier shame is realizing that they're the cause of that evil. They introduced that evil. They took what God had given them, that glass vase on the shelf, and they went and broke it. And now they feel not just the evil, but they feel the weight of responsibility for that evil. They just broke the world with a bite out of a piece of fruit. Why was that so important to them a minute ago? And suddenly they're now, they're now covered with shame. Look what they do next. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. Now, it's easy to blow past that, but I don't want to. This seems like it was a normal occurrence, that in the evening when the cool wind started blowing, God would just come down and take a walk with them. Let me ask you, what would you give for a walk with God? Give me a half hour, God. Give me a walk. I would love to hear your voice in my ears, your actual voice. I would love to talk to you. I have so many things I would love to ask you. It appears that it was just a normal part of their evening to enjoy a walk with God. But on this day, they decide not to show up. And what they do instead is they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, let me ask you, do you think God knew where they were? I mean, this is almost like when I go in the living room and I hear, find me, daddy. Right, and there's this big bundle of blankets on the couch, wiggling and moving. You know, I wonder where you are, you know. God knows exactly where they're at. God sees and hears and knows everything there is to see, hear, and know. And yet in their shame, they're hiding from the God who knows everything. It is a human response to shame, to hide. We did it as kids. I remember distinctly as a kid the shame of grabbing my mom's scissors and using, using them to pry open a, a toy truck back door, and it worked, but I broke mom's scissors. My mom, if she watches this, I'm sorry, mom. I don't know if I've ever told you I broke your scissors because I hit them, right? And there's that sense of shame I don't want to admit. We did it as kids. We still do it as adults, and that's exactly what they do. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. There's another emotion that they had never felt up until this moment. 
for the first time in their existence, not only do they feel shame, they feel fear. Fear and emotion God never intended them to feel. He gave them a perfect garden, no need for shame. He gave them a perfect life, a perfect marriage, no need for fear. And in this moment, suddenly they're experiencing these waves of emotion they've never felt. Shame, fear, shame, fear. Anyone else ever battle fear? Anxiety? All of this is from the brokenness and the corruption of this event. Look at verse 11. So God replies, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Now listen, whenever God asks a question, he already knows the answer. Why is he asking the question? Inviting them to come clean. Inviting them to just tell the truth. And the man replied, I ate it and I'm an absolute fool for doing it. That's not exactly Adam's reply, was it? What does he do right away? He starts the game we've been playing ever since, the blame game. It's their fault. It was the woman you gave me, right? Now, he's not just blaming the woman. Who's he really blaming? God, you gave her to me. You gave me this woman, right? It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. I mean, she gave it to me. I just, I just chewed it, you know? So he, he points the finger, blames her. So the Lord asks the woman, what have you done? The serpent tricked me. The serpent deceived me, that's why I ate it. And, and, and around and around the blame game goes, right? They, they point the finger, I didn't start it, I just finished it. It's not my fault. And we've been playing that game ever since. And so what God does, and you can read the rest of this chapter, the Lord then gives the consequences. He curses the serpent and gives some heavy consequences. He curses the woman and gives some heavy consequences. He curses the man and gives some heavy consequences. The world would now be broken because it already was. They broke it. It would be filled with hard, sweaty, frustrating work, painful childbirth, relational conflict, disease, suffering, pain, and death. And in many ways, that was the day they died. But physically, they stayed alive. They died relationally. They died spiritually. They died emotionally. But they stayed alive physically. Now physically, let me ask you, should they have also died physically? Yeah, because God's rule is sin equals death. That's the only way to deal with sin is death. But God, instead of killing them, which they deserved, because that was his rule, you'll die. God instead he does kill. But what does God kill? Kills an innocent animal. And watch what he does with that innocent animal. Verse 21. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. God makes the first set of leather clothes. He kills an innocent animal. That innocent animal dies. God requires death when there's sin. But instead of throwing the death on them, the physical death, he throws it on this animal, this unknown animal, and this animal dies. And God then gives them what they desperately need, which is clothing. 
What's interesting is up until this moment in their lives, they had everything they need, everything they needed and everything they could want. But when they violated God, suddenly they're in need of clothes and they try to do it themselves and they, they sew leaves together for clothes. You, can, you could bet that was pretty effective. And that's just our feeble attempt to fix it ourselves. God's like, guys, you don't know how to sew, let alone sew leaves together. Let me make you some clothes. Something's got to die. It's going to be this animal, but I'll use this animal's death to not just cover your sin, but also to clothe you. And there's this powerful thing that's happening that day. In fact, I don't want to miss the picture, so I'll let you look with me at verse 15 to see this picture because it's kind of cool. When God's cursing the serpent, he says this, I will cause hostility between you, serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, if you just take this at face value, he's talking about forever, snakes are going to be coming after you. And you're going to be fighting them. And you're going to keep trying to bite their feet. They're going to have to wear cowboy boots to protect themselves from snake bites. You know that's why cowboy boots are tall to protect from snake bites? I just learned that. It's fascinating. But you'll strike the head of the snake. So this was a prophecy. In fact, it was a promise that one day, the offspring of this woman would be nipped by the snake. And what happened is one day the offspring of this woman was indeed nipped or bitten by the snake, poisonous snake. He died 2,000 years ago. But three days later, he walked out of his own grave, crushing, striking the head of the serpent. This is a promise of a future deliverer. This is a promise of a future rescuer, someone who will finally go toe-to-toe with the serpent and beat him. And right there, in the moment of corruption, God gives them a hope that someday, someone stronger than you and better than you will go toe-to-toe on this earth with this serpent and will beat him. And my friend, you and I have someone who we can lean on and turn to who is more powerful than the serpent. And his death, like the death of this animal, his death would be a substitution for our death. And just like the animal here in Eden, the skin was used to cover them. Someday, the death of the offspring of this woman would die and his Blood would cover us, our shame and our guilt and our nakedness. And just like God provided for Adam and Eve on that day, God would provide someday for the offspring of Adam and Eve. Look at verse 22. This is fascinating as we just finish up this account of corruption. The Lord God said, look, The human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. They introduced evil. They know all about it. What if they reach out, take the fruit from the tree of life, which is another tree that they hadn't even eaten from yet, 
tree of immortality, you've heard of the fountain of youth. This was the tree of youth. You'd never die. Then they will live forever, which was always God's intent that they live forever, but now they shouldn't, and now they can't. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. Listen, could you imagine if God had let them eat that other fruit and live forever? Is this a world you'd want to live forever in? You ever seen those, those competitions of people who have lived, you know, 115 years old or whatever, and and you look at them and you're like, man, I'm not jealous. I don't want to make it to 100 in this world. Could you imagine if you live forever in this mess? So God, in an act of mercy, banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim, these are other mighty beings that he had made, to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Can you imagine the rest of their lives walking past the entrance to Eden and knowing you can never go back in? There it is. And there's that flaming sword. can never go back in. Creation, corruption. And that's really depressing until you realize that ever since then, God has been working on a new Eden. I mean, he created the heavens and the earth, the, the, the universe, the planets. How long did it take him to make all that stuff? Six days. Do you know that he has been working on a new one, an uncorrupted one, for thousands of years now? Can you imagine how awesome it must be? And I would love to tell you about that, but it's actually the last C. You've got to wait five weeks. But if you really want to cheat, go to the end of this book. You read the last two chapters, and you'll see all about it. It's incredible. But until that last event in history happens, because see, that's not history, that's future, we get to live down here in a world that's corrupted and broken. What's interesting is God had promised them, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. What has marked our world ever since? Death. Death. It is amazing. You can live a great life or a bad life, and someday there's going to be a stone with two dates and a hash. And that's going to mark your life. The day you're born and the day you died. The year, the day, that's it. Death. Death through diseases and viruses and wars. And we live on top of that in a society that is scared of death and yet a society that has embraced death. We live in a society that pushes for death and encourages death in the womb. We live in a society that is now pushing for death at the end of life and they call it euthanasia as if they have the power of death, as if death is somehow a good thing. We live in a society that, that, that is so intent on killing and death that you have the death now of not just life, but you have now the death of identity and the death of gender and the death of community and the death of everything we hold good. Can you imagine how grieved God is? The author of life looking down and seeing a world of death. And here we live with it. And weeks like last week, my heart is broken under the weight of it and the temptation to shake my fist at God. And yet he is not the cause of this death. 
He is not the cause of the suffering and disease. He is the solution. He is just as broken and as grieved as we are. One day Jesus went to a funeral, and you know what he did at that funeral? He wept. Minutes later, he would call out the dead guy out of his grave and raise him to life. But he was still so grieved and broken by death. Death was not his intention. Death was not his plan. Death was not his hope for you and I. And I think the tendency is when you read this corruption account in Genesis 3, the tendency is, and let's just be honest, to get a little ticked off at Adam and Eve. Why'd you have to go and ruin it? Why'd you have to go take a bite? Couldn't you have self-control? Why'd you have to wreck it for the rest of us? But you know what Adam and Eve did? Exactly what I would have done. Exactly what you would have done. Because see, the problem is that Satan set a trap. The power of the trap is not the trap, the mechanism. You know what the power of the trap is? It's the bait. I've been playing with mice in my house for a few months now. I found out they really like peanut butter. The problem is my traps haven't worked, so I had some really fat mice for a while. They kept eating my peanut butter off my trap. This is a rat trap. This isn't what I use. Don't worry. But here's what I found about mice. When I get a trap that works and I put something on there they like, they have 24 hours or less left in their mind. Satan's mastery is that he knows what to put on the trap. He knows what we like. See, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, the reality is the corruption. It's easy to point out there at the world and saying, it's corrupt, it's ruined, it's a mess, but the problem isn't out there. The problem is right here. My heart is bent away from God. My heart wants to do its own thing. And the world tells me, follow your heart, Justin. Do what makes you feel good. Boy, that sounds nice. Boy, that makes a good graduation speech. But it's just a piece of fruit saying you don't have to listen to God. Listen to yourself. Do what makes you feel good. Satan can't ruin God's perfection. He can't ruin God's creation. But he knows we can. And so he uses our corrupt hearts to rebel and push against our creator and the one who made us. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God has made a way. Acts 4.12, there is salvation, there is rescue in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. What is that name? The name of Jesus. When I was young, I used to watch a show called Family Matters. Steve Urkel, classic phrase in his nasally voice, would say, I've fallen and I can't get up. Maybe there needs to be a little more Urkel in all of us. I've fallen and I keep trying to get up. I keep trying to fix myself and care, care for my anxiety and my shame and my fear myself. And God says, you can't. 
You can't fix yourself. Go sew fig leaves together and see how good of clothing that is. I've fallen and I can't get up. I need my Savior to rescue me. Look at what he says here in 1 Corinthians. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. At one point in history, there was the first Adam, and him and his wife corrupted everything. And we're all in this line of corruption. We're all sinners by birth. And at a very young age, we decide to become sinners by choice. No one taught me how to lie. No one taught me how to break my mom's scissors and hide them. No one taught me any of that stuff. I was a sinner by birth, but I became a sinner by choice, corrupted from birth. Because I'm from the line of Adam, and so are you. But everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. One day, a second Adam came onto the scene. And in the same way the first Adam corrupted everything, the second Adam can recreate everything. The first Adam brought death. The second Adam brings life. The first Adam brought suffering and pain and disease. The second Adam brings a fresh start. All of us live with the consequences of the first Adam. All of us are offered the forgiveness of the second. You say it's not fair that one Adam messed it up for the rest of us. You know what also isn't fair? That one person could fix it for me. That one person could die for me. That's not fair. Jesus was perfect, did nothing wrong. And yet he went to the cross and he died to be my substitute. I don't deserve that. And in my pain and in my anger and in my shame and in my guilt, it's so easy to shake my fist at God. God, why? Why would you allow death to win? Why would you allow pain and suffering and virus and disease? And I'm shaking my fist at the very solution to all those things, not the cause. Satan is not the villain of Genesis 3. The human heart is. And my friends, God is the solution, the hero of Genesis 3. And his son, Jesus, can and will save each and every single person from the corruption that our rebellion has brought. Would you do me a favor and and bow with me in prayer? It just makes me wonder, if we stop blaming God for the mess... How different might things be? There's an old song, an old hymn that goes like this. It's, It's titled, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the line, the lyric goes like this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. That line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Do you feel your soul wandering from God? It is so natural and easy and instinctive for us to do exactly that. We wander from God. And then we feel shame and guilt. And then what do we do? We run from him. We hide from him. And God comes down for another walk. And he comes down looking 
for us, not to condemn us, but to forgive us. Why are we hiding from him? He wants nothing more than to rescue us. What if we learn to stop running from him and we learn to start running towards him? What if we stop shaking our fists at him as if he's the source of our problem and start lifting up our hands towards him as the solution to our problems? God is just as grieved and devastated by our broken world as we are. No more so. This is not what he ever intended. And one day, he will set it straight. One day, he will recreate Eden. One day, he will welcome his kids back. But he's waiting. You say, why is he waiting? He's waiting because there's more that need to hear this good news. He's waiting because he's so patient, there's still some kids hiding in the trees. And he says, come, I see you. I know your shame, I know your guilt, I know your past, and I'm not scared by it. I love you. And I died to forgive you. Come to me. Today I invite you, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, it's a matter of faith, it's a matter of the heart. Is your soul right with God? Has he cleansed you yet? I invite you today, if you haven't, to believe in his son Jesus. There's no other name that can heal and forgive and save you. You've tried it your own way. Has it, has it worked? There is no way you can fix yourself. Let me ask you, those of you who are followers of Jesus already, do you, do you trust that God is good? Satan will lie and manipulate and, and get you to believe that God's not good. God's trying to prevent you from a life of fun and excitement and joy. He's trying to rob you of something, but it's Satan who's trying to rob you. Do not doubt the goodness of God. The limits he has placed for you, they're there for your good. They're there because he loves you. They're there because he wants the best for you. Don't hop his fence. Father, teach me. Teach my heart that is so prone to wander to live within the limits and the boundaries you've set for me. Forgive me for running in my shame and my guilt away from the very one I should be running towards. Thank you that even in that original act of corruption, you still came down for a walk to rescue the very ones who had just rebelled against you and broke your perfect creation. You are such a good, patient, forgiving God. Teach us how to trust that. We pray this in Jesus' name.